Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome to another exciting episode of Rossafari Zoo News. All the news about zoos and the world of conservation brought to you by the Rossafari Podcast. How are you all doing today, my friendly little listeners? I hope it is well. Um, you know, I've been trying to think of something cool to call you all, call the fan base, to give it a, a, a name and a, and a sense of camaraderie that way. And I can't help but think that Rossafarians might be the way to go. Now, I know that Rastafari is a religion, and it, it's clearly a pun, and I wouldn't want to be accused of cultural appropriation or insensitivity. So if uh, if you have some thoughts on that, let me know, because, um, I mean, it's all in good fun where I'm sitting, but uh, I would never want to offend anyone. So please, if you have thoughts on on that, let me know. Uh, and otherwise, I think I'm just going to start referring to all of my lovely fan base as Rossafarians. Because dang it all, I love myself a good pun. So before we get to the news today, let's just uh, take a second to quickly remind y'all to make sure that you have subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Got some really cool interviews coming up for y'all, and I'm, I'm excited to share. So make sure you do hit subscribe. And if you're able to, Take a second to click the five-star rating and maybe even take a couple more seconds and write me a pretty fancy little review saying why you love this podcast. It does help other people find it, and that is the goal, and that's how we keep growing the Rossafari Nation. I see. Yeah, I like Rossafarians better. That was just weird. But hey, let's be honest. This is why you guys really came here, right? It's, it's not for zoo news or conservation information. It is to hear a host having a slight debate with himself on the morality of nomenclature, right? No? That's not why you're here? Okay, well then, without further ado... Well, it's one for the pandas, two for the bears, three for the monkeys, now you should care, now won't you listen to Zoom News? Okay, okay, I know I said that after the first listen through, I would definitely cut that down and fade it, but um, I really like it, and it's my podcast, so maybe I will someday, but for now, uh, I just, I like it. So we start this uh, episode rehashing something that I'm sure many of you have already seen, which is that the New York Times last week put out an opinion piece called The Case Against Zoos. The article dropped on June 11th, and uh, later that evening, 
released officially on June 12th, I put out an episode called The Case for Zoos, a bonus episode that was a rebuttal to basically the entire article. I'm not going to rehash any of that here, but if for some reason you missed the article, uh, and really you're not missing much, or you missed the bonus episode, I thought I would take a moment to plug it here. And it just felt weird doing Zoo News of the Week without mentioning what might have been the biggest bit of Zoo News in the entire week. So now I mentioned it. You can go and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. And uh, let's move on from that utter crap. So, last week, I brought you the 10 best zoos in the country, 10 best aquariums in the country, and 10 best safari parks in the country, as voted on by the readers of USA Today. Well, turns out there was actually a fourth category that is relevant to our interests here. And so, without further ado, I give you the top 10 zoo exhibits in the USA, according to USA Today readers. Coming in at number 10 is the California Trail at the Oakland Zoo. Number nine, and the place that I first learned about and fell in love with tree kangaroos, Walkabout Australia at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Number eight, the Land of the Tiger at Jacksonville Zoo and Gardens. And I was just there and it is an amazing setup. Number seven is the Boyd Family Asian Trek at Zoo Knoxville. Number six is Simmons Hippo Outpost at the Dallas Zoo. Number five is the Devereux Tiger Forest at the Detroit Zoo. Number four, and man, we've talked about them a lot on this podcast, even did an episode about it, the Museum of Living Art at Fort Worth Zoo. Number three is Rocky Mountain Wild at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Number two is Tiger Crossroads at Nashville Zoo. And again, whew, what an exhibit. And the number one best zoo exhibit in the country, Asian Highlands at Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo. And remember, kids, if your zoo didn't win, they can try again next year. All right, moving on to a slightly sadder topic. Castor the Bear, a longtime resident at the Tallahassee Museum, has passed away. 26 years ago, when Castor was in his first year of life, he was causing trouble in Louisiana. He was getting into all kinds of trash bins and getting too close to people, and he was on his last strike with the Fish and Wildlife Commission planning on putting him down if he caused any more trouble. Instead, the Tallahassee Museum was able to accept him into their black bear exhibit where he lived his entire life. You know, this is one of those types of things that doesn't get talked about a lot with zoos, but is really cool. By bringing him in as a rescue and saving him from uh, an early death, not only was Castor able to live a good, happy life, but he was also able to be a great ambassador for his species in the wild. Beyond that, he was actually involved in helping the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission test out designs for bear-proof trash cans that would help other bears not get into the same trouble that he was getting into when he was a little yearling. I love that the Tallahassee Museum was able to provide not only a new lease on life for Castor, but also to all the other bears that benefited from those safer trash cans. 
awesome work, Caster. You will be missed. And now we can talk about a deadly virus and the vaccines that have been created to help stave it off. And no, I don't mean that one. The population of riparian brush rabbits that is living in the San Joaquin River Wildlife Refuge is facing a threat from a deadly virus that is ripping through the species. Riparian brush rabbits are an endangered species that is native to California. Unfortunately, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus stereotype, also known as RHDV2, which originated in Europe and is now spreading throughout New Mexico, Texas, Mexico, and California, is taking its toll on the remaining population of these rabbits. Fortunately, the Oakland Zoo has stepped in, working with the Department of Fish and Wildlife in California and also the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to curb the disease. When the vaccine was developed, the Oakland Zoo brought in 20 specimens and tested it to make sure that it would not have any adverse reactions in the population. And now that that study is complete, the rabbits were released back into the wild and the Oakland Zoo is going to be helping their partners to vaccinate the wild population in their natural habitat. Weirdly enough, there are no anti-vax rabbits and no partisan BS that is making some of the rabbits decide that they don't want to have the vaccine. In fact, not one single rabbit has been known to say my body, my choice when it comes to this topic. And yes, this serves as just another great example of a zoo interacting to save wild endangered species in their habitat. Nice work to the care staff at the Oakland Zoo. Earlier this week, the Cincinnati Zoo broke ground on a $50 million attraction, the largest that will ever have been housed at the zoo. The exhibit, entitled Elephant Trek, is going to be bringing people at the zoo closer than they've ever been able to be before to the elephant herd there. Once completed, the habitat will be home to between 8 and 10 elephants in a herd that is multi-generational. The exhibit is also run entirely with renewable energy and is created in such a way to produce less waste than previous elephant habitats would. This is accomplished by housing an array of solar panels that will generate electricity not only for the exhibit, but for the whole zoo, and also have a 1 million gallon stormwater collection tank, which will also be used throughout the zoo. The exhibit will be five acres in size and will house gibbons, Asian small-clawed otters, and the elephants that it is named after. Elephant Trek will be opening in 2024. If you are a fan of aquariums, you may notice some interesting, unique, and, well, fictional animals showing up soon. That's right, y'all. It's the summer, and that is the season for aquariums such as Ripley's Aquarium in Tennessee and Adventure Aquarium in Camden, New Jersey, to bring in their mermaids promotion. If you've never seen this, uh, and I don't blame you, uh, then what it is is they hire actors to come in and portray mermaids, and sometimes mermen, as a part of the aquarium experience. And I'm not going to lie. For the longest time, this promotion really bothered me. You know, in a world where there are so many ocean animals that need help and are in trouble, um, the, the thought of spending time promoting mer people, it just didn't do it for me. 
But then I brought it up to somebody who works at an aquarium who shall remain nameless and was told that at that aquarium, the mermaid's promotion, along with one other one that is also a not entirely real creature, brings in more money than any other promotions done by said aquarium. By like a lot of money. Mermaids are a big deal for these places. And hey, when children want to come, or, or, or adults, you know, whatever, no judgment here, but when people want to come and see mermaids, and then maybe they'll be there and they can learn a little bit about sea turtles or about fish or about octopi, mostly sea turtles, um, and, and then you have an educational component going beyond just the, the silliness of the uh, people putting on fake fins and hanging out near the water thing. So, if you're like old John, and you see a promotion saying that mermaids are coming, don't shake your head too hard and know that it's actually a great way to get people who aren't necessarily interested in aquariums into the aquarium to learn science, and also a great way for the aquarium to help fund the amazing amount of work that they do for their animals. And finally in Zoo News, congratulations to Dr. Rob Koch, the veterinarian at the San Antonio Zoo, who has been named a finalist for the Hero Veterinarian Award. In the last year, Dr. Koch was able to lead his 18-person team through the pandemic while also leading research and conservation efforts for Komodo dragons abroad. He also helped keep all of the animals at the San Antonio Zoo safe and warm during a devastating and unexpected February freeze. Perhaps the sweetest story about Dr. Rob is about his connection to Bubba, the Komodo dragon who lives at the zoo. Bubba suffers from a degenerative joint disease, but has actually been improving because Dr. Rob, as he goes by at the zoo, keeps coming up with new innovative therapies. In the last few months, these therapies have really helped Bubba to start to heal. That's especially impressive since degenerative diseases are, well, degenerative, and usually, at best, you can hope to uh, manage the pain and the condition of the animal and slow the degeneration. Congratulations to Dr. Rob and his team at the San Antonio Zoo. And now... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! It seems like every week now I am talking about some kind of wolf conservation, and lately it's it's almost all been good news. I'm looking at you, Idaho. So uh, yeah, let's let's talk about some more. Back in the 1940s, the gray wolf was driven to the brink of extinction in Colorado. Many of the remaining wolves have been collared in order to be studied and hopefully help with reintroduction efforts. And I have two bits of good news on that front. First of all, for the first time since the 1940s, there are wolf pups in the state. At least three gray wolves were born recently in the wild. The mother, known as Jane, and the father, known as John, possibly Doe? I don't know. Anyway, um, have been observed taking care of at least three pups. Now, a normal wolf litter is four to six pups, but um, because they are being observed and not actually interacted with, uh, it's impossible for the uh, people from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Service to uh, know if there are more pups or not. They have seen three at one given time. 
This news is coupled with the fact that towards the end of last year, the initiative to require the reintroduction of the wolf into Colorado passed, meaning that by 2023, there are going to be more wolves introduced into the state. That's especially exciting if these pups make it because that will give them plenty of opportunities for breeding outside of the population that is just dropped into the state. These two steps happening at the same time predict a great future for the gray wolf in Colorado. And now we go from Colorado to Michigan, where Central Michigan University has received a $10 million grant to continue their research into the Great Lakes wetlands. The grant was granted to the school by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The coastal wetlands of the Great Lakes are critical habitats for many aquatic and terrestrial species, uh, including some endangered species. Despite that fact, more than 50% of Great Lakes coastal wetlands have been lost relative to historic levels due to agricultural practices such as diking or ditching and other land use done by humans. You know it's conservation news time when we're talking about all the dumb stuff humans do that hurts the earth. However, this grant will allow the school to undertake an amazing amount of data collection, which will then be used to come up with a conservation plan for the remaining land. It is believed that the data collected will be used not only locally, but globally to help preserve wetlands. Let's hope that data comes in effectively and works well. Next, we get into one of those interesting stories that has two sides that don't quite agree and are both trying to take care of the animal in question. Whales, which have been the subject of other such disputes, are yet again the subject of one right now in Norway. You see, a research team in Norway is intending to capture a dozen minke whales off the coast and then use sensors placed on their skin to measure their brain response in reaction to sound. The idea behind this is that the team will have a better understanding of what kinds of human-made ocean noise affects the whales because human-made noise has a huge impact on their hearing and behavior and can also be a major stressor for the whales. The chief scientist at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment, who is intending to go ahead with this experiment, said, quote, We have essentially no knowledge of their hearing, and it's important to noise regulators to know what kind of noise might affect them. He also did go on to explain that the team will not be testing noise tolerance or how they react to sound behaviorally. The idea is to expose them to low sounds to find their hearing threshold on that end, and then supply that information to noise regulators so that future human things such as boats can be less stressful for the whales. While in theory this sounds like a great idea, 50 international scientists and veterinarians have called on Norway's prime minister to cancel the trial immediately. They state that the trial has significant potential for causing injury and stress, potentially resulting in capture myopathy. Capture myopathy is a non-infectious condition in wild and domestic animals in which muscle damage results from extreme exertion, struggle, or stress, and it can be fatal, according to CNN. UK-based organization Whale and Dolphin Conservation states that little is known about sedating or stunning wild whales and dolphins 
and it is therefore rarely attempted. Available data indicate that sedation of baleen whales in the wild could be life-threatening. Furthermore, the group goes on to explain that we already know a great deal from observational studies about how high-amplitude human-made noise affects baleen whales, so the proposed research is not only dangerous and unethical, it is also redundant. And so that's the question. On one hand, you have a group of people who acknowledge that we know some behavioral information, but really want to get to the depths of exactly what noise can affect whales in order to help put less of it into the ocean. And on the other hand, you have a group who says that the experiment is not necessary and that the results to the whales could be detrimental. I'll be curious to see the end results. Now, those of you who have watched the Marvel Avengers movies may know that Captain America was found frozen in the ice and thawed out in modern times after falling into the ice in World War II. It seems a little far-fetched. Okay, it seems a lot far-fetched. But maybe, just maybe, not as far-fetched as you might think. You see, an animal was recently revived after slumbering in the Arctic permafrost for 24,000 years. The animal is a microscopic animal called a betaloid rotifer, and it uh, typically lives in a watery environment and uh, is known for its ability to survive harsh conditions. In the past, they've even been found after being frozen for 10 years and thawed out to resume their lives. But the discovery of some of the species that had been frozen for 24,000 years is the first proof that we have that multicellular animals could withstand tens of thousands of years in cryptobiosis, which is the state of almost completely arrested metabolism. Sadly, there is no mention of any teeny tiny red, white, and blue star-spangled shields being found near any of the rotifers. This week, conservationists in Kenya said goodbye to Scarface. No, I, I don't mean the movie. I mean a 14-year-old lion that is pretty famous and known for a scar over his eye that has been living at Kenya's Maasai Mara Game Reserve. The lion died of natural causes, and the average lifespan of a wild lion can be eh, 14 to 15 years, so there's nothing weird there. In fact, in his early life, Scarface had suffered many injuries from attacks, so his death of natural causes at the age of 14 actually speaks to exactly how incredibly well Maasai Mara has taken care of their wild lions. Scarface will definitely be missed. And... Wait, what? I'm, I'm sorry, what did you say? Oh man, you still haven't heard enough about whale conservation on this podcast lately? Okay, okay, here's one more whale story for you. Since 2002, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization has been using advanced underwater microphones, called hydrophones, to detect sound waves from potential nuclear bomb tests. They have also made the sound recordings that they take available to scientists to use for their marine science research. And that is how a University of New South Wales-led team was able to find an unusually strong signal, a whale song that had previously been identified in the recordings, but that scientists still knew little about. 
After closely studying the composition, including details like the song's structure, frequency, and tempo, stuff that I always have to pay attention to as a music director and professional musician, I will point out, they realized that the song belonged to a group of pygmy blue whales, but not any of the groups previously recorded in the area. This is especially exciting as blue whales are almost extinct and there are only four populations known in the Indian Ocean at this time. This would represent the fifth population. Now, y'all, I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure that five populations of an endangered whale is better than four. Hopefully we can get some visual proof that these whales exist soon, because as of now, there is none. But the sound of the song is hugely, hugely promising. And now... In other news. A lobster diver who sadly was not named Jonas has survived after being swallowed alive by a humpback whale. Yeah, I, I know. We're heavy on whales today, y'all. But hey, whales are heavy. While attempting to catch lobster on a Friday morning, the man in question, named Michael Packard, was diving when suddenly he was caught by a humpback whale swallowing him whole. He said, quote, all of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. After 30 to 40 seconds of pure panic, I should clarify that panic is uh, from Packard. Uh, I was unable to contact the whale to get its opinion on how it was feeling during that time. The whale surfaced and just started shaking its head like crazy. Packard was thrown in the air and landed in the water. He was bruised, but otherwise fine. Now, don't worry, y'all. This isn't some new type of Jaws slash humpback whale hybrid. Humpback whales are not aggressive, and they do not eat humans. They typically eat krill. Um, and it is believed by scientists that it was an honest mistake. When whales open their mouths to feed, they have pretty poor vision, and it is most likely that the whale was eating some fish in the area and could not see Packard and accidentally scooped him up. Clearly, the whale was not a big fan, possibly of the taste, I don't know, I've never eaten a human, and so quickly spit him out. China has a herd of wandering elephants that is causing all kinds of trouble in the country. Over a year ago, the group of elephants left the wildlife reserve that they were living in and has been trekking north through the country since. Authorities have been trying to keep a distance while also keeping the herd of elephants away from local residents by blocking roads into villages and even trying to lure them away from the villages with food drops. This has had mixed success, and the herd of 15 elephants have definitely raided some farms and strolled down some city and town streets while, uh, you know, foraging for snacks in the villages and even overrunning a retirement home trying to find some food. So far, all 15 animals seem healthy, and not a single person has been injured by them. As of now, it is unclear why the elephants decided to leave their reserve, but it is believed that it could include a lack of food supply there, a rise in the elephant population, and, of course, most importantly, loss of habitat in the area. Yep, even in a wildlife preserve. We really, really struggle with this stuff, guys. We really do. And, and this is that whole thing again of, you know, 
when people say, why not just release all of the animals back into the wild? Well, because the wild isn't even able to hold the small population of this incredibly endangered species that it currently has. Perhaps the best news about this situation is that elephants enjoy the same level of protection as panda bears in China, meaning the absolute highest protection possible to be given by the government. As such, the citizens of China know not to attack these elephants or even spend too long gawking at them. With their latest movements, the herd actually tends to be pointing closer to the reserve that they left, so the hope is that they may be trying to return home now. It will definitely be interesting to watch these wandering elephants as they continue on their journey and we'll see where they end up. And now your animal holidays for the week. Keep in mind it is Zoo and Aquarium Month, Orca Month, and World Oceans Month. Thursday the 17th is the World Croc Day Celebration. The 18th starts Cephalopod Week and is also Veterinary Appreciation Day. The 19th is World Albatross Day. Sunday the 20th is American Eagle Day. And the 21st is World Giraffe Day as well as the start to Pollinator Week. Tuesday the 22nd is World Camel Day and also World Rainforest Day. And Wednesday, the 23rd, is Pink Flamingo Day. So all you other flamingos, it's not your day. And so there you have it, folks. Your first ever Zoo News episode recorded while on the road down here in sunny Sarasota. I want to give a huge shout out to the just many, many people who sent me stuff this week. Kim Cooley, Dr. Natalie Taco, Alicia Gaudet, Anya Keen, Elizabeth Dunlevy, and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross all contributed stories to this week's episode. Thank you all. And remember, if you want to contribute, go ahead and tag me in any stories you see at Ross Safari on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also, you could send them to me. My email address is rossafaripod at gmail.com. And remember, friends, Newsy Credits Backwards is Yeswen Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.